Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the Communications Manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are absolutely honored here today to be hosting Campbell Lillard. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. So our topic today is mentorship and belonging. Really, really excited to get into this topic of belonging. And I'll read a little bit about Campbell, and then we'll dive into a, a centering opportunity. Campbell Lillard has been working in both the fitness and nonprofit industries since 2018 after serving a 10-year sentence in Texas State Prison. During his incarceration, Campbell re realized that there was a lot about himself that he did not like. However, training showed him that he could change if he set an intention and applied work. This realization led him on an obsessive quest to become the best version of himself through intentional stress and challenge. Today, Campbell is using his unique life experiences to connect and empower others. His mission is to help people discover their inner strength and support their journey of becoming the fullest expression of themselves. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So... I feel inspired to lead a centering opportunity that really embeds us in this understanding and feeling of belonging. Maybe you're seated, maybe you're laying down, but I invite you to find a lengthening of the spine if that's accessible for you. And immediately when I find some lengthening in the spine, my body wants to take a big inhale and a big exhale. So let's take a couple moments to just bring our attention to our breath and the natural rhythm of your breath is perfect. Maybe your eyes are open or closed. A few more intentional breaths. And where I feel like I would love us to start is finding a connection to the earth. So maybe you're on the fifth floor of an office building. Maybe you're listening to this in your car, maybe at your house. Let's see if you can create an energetic anchor into the earth. Maybe starting from your belly button, driving deep down into your body, into the earth, allowing this rope or this cord to find the magma, the bright, bright, hot magma of the center of the earth. And once you've found this place, pull or bring that energy up through the cord back into our body, anchoring ourselves into time and space here on our precious planet. 
And let's extend our understanding of belonging. First, let's start with our neighbors, our actual physical neighbors. Maybe you can start thinking of your neighborhood and all of the people around you that have this same anchor, this place of our birth. And maybe you can expand it to the whole city that you're in. Seeing and feeling that everyone on this planet shares the same experience of belonging to this place. And maybe we can expand this to a state if we're in the United States. Or maybe we can expand this to the whole country. And allow this expansive understanding of belonging to wrap around the entire earth. And tying this back together to our breath. That our breath is the shared experience of life. We can sit here for a few more breaths, embodying this understanding of belonging. And I want and feel called to invite another specific group that we support and part of our community, reaching beyond the barriers that have been created by people. I also want to call into the room all of our participants from all around the world that are currently incarcerated, that are part of this community that are part of this deep and inherent sense of belonging. A few more breaths here. You can bring this practice to a close. Maybe you're bringing your eyes open shifting your gaze back to the screen and bringing ourselves back in to this time and space together. Thank you all for joining us in this centering opportunity. Thank you, Campbell, for being here. What's your first memory of mindfulness? So most of most of my early life, uh, I tried to not be mindful. I tried to hide from the world and hide from myself and hide from feelings. And 
that looked like in my like earliest life, as soon as I had control over this or, or some decision-making powers, it looked like getting out of the house, like going in the street. It looked like going to my homeboy's houses and other people's places where I could just like forget and be with another group of people where there was a, some sort of sense of belonging. Uh, later on, it looked like lots of drug use. Um, later on, it looked like lots of violence. Uh, but I have a like, distinct recollection in, I was in a lot of older prisons in Texas. So just think like, you know, media is never reality, but you can kind of like imagine like old prison movies that take place in the South or whatever with like cells that are like in that kind of style. Um, those units were, were like very loud and rambunctious is a word that might describe it well. And I remember having to tune, having to try to tune that out to start to sit with myself. And I just remember focusing on my breath without like any guidance or experience or knowledge uh, and just intuition. And that would be my first memory of a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific memory that you bring yourself back to of when you were trying to quiet the outside world and pay attention inside? It, it's non-specific. And I would say that, you know, prison is a lot of monotony. It's a lot of the, the same thing over and over um, interspaced with periods of uh, short bursts of time that are uh, filled with like a lot going on uh, quickly. Um, but I, I do have this like recollection. I, again, it feels non-specific of me sitting on a bunk trying to just be with myself and sit with myself at, at some point in my uh, in my journey through prison or my time in prison, uh, I realized that I was going to have to start sitting with myself to be comfortable with myself and, and be comfortable in my own skin. And uh, I just, you know, almost have this like third person view of me sitting on a bone, trying to focus on my breath and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You opened us up a little bit to your childhood, but will you tell us more about some of your early childhood experiences? Yeah, I, um, my childhood, maybe that painted a picture that was untrue. Um, I had, I had a pretty decent childhood. My mom was a teacher, single mom, worked a lot, um, did really well for me, like gave, sacrificed a lot. Um, but I, I never felt like I belonged. Uh, she couldn't have kids and I was adopted. Um, and I, there was like always a sense of me not feeling at home or she came from a really traumatic background. So me not feeling like I had a family. Um, and I, I believe or I have the perception that my like arrival into the streets or my trying to leave the home was, was because I, I didn't feel like I really belong there or, or had a space. If that makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So this idea of not feeling like you belonged and then you are starting to look externally for belonging. What did that journey look like? Yeah, it, it looked like me seeking out places where I could get recognition. So I was always like the kid in the street that was like, yo, I'll do this. I'll do this smash and grab. Like, I'm down to do this. Like, I'm down to go like ride with the big homie while he steals the car. Uh, and, and that gave me this thing that I, I in school, I never felt smart. 
I was never led to believe that I was smart. So maybe I would have sought recognition if if that had been different in, in academics, but it, it just wasn't the case. Um, but when I did some, when I went on a mission or like did a thing, I got like, I got, I was the guy. And so I really enjoyed that feeling and it made me feel like I had a home and it made me feel like I had people that care about me. And obviously in the course of this conversation, like we understand that that's not true, but at the time I didn't realize that to be true. It it felt true to you. If like, I am visualizing that you had praise and you had comfort and you had community and you had people. Yeah. And it, it felt great and it felt warm and it felt like, you know, I went from being this person who was very much dissatisfied with himself and who he was. And I got these like short bursts, these like tiny moments of recognition and validation. And I felt like, oh, like I'm actually like important. Like I'm I'm somebody after all. Mm-hmm. And this led to you being incarcerated for 10 years in Texas. Will you share some of your experience or what happened when you were incarcerated? Yeah, for sure. And and maybe context is is important here. And I don't want to, sometimes these questions can feel like you're walking on eggshells or whatever, but I was, um, I was incarcerated uh, on a 10 year sentence for a string of aggravated robberies as part of my life to kicking dope houses and rob dope dealers. And that's just like how I made a living for myself, how I, how I experienced life at the time. Uh, and that had obvious consequences. And I knew that's where I was going, but I didn't really care. And everybody around me was going there or had been there. And it just almost felt, I, I, I don't like the word predestined or fate or never really have, um, but it just like felt like this path that was laid out for me. It felt like what I was supposed to do. Uh, and so running the streets, I thought I was I thought I was bad. I thought I was like doing my thing. I thought I was on top of the world. And then I got incarcerated and I was maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet, addicted to heroin. And I was met with some, my mentor would call it disconfirming information. So I thought I was like of this elevated status. And then my first fight in jail was for the right to eat the trays that were slid into the housing pod. Uh, And I obviously like lost that fight because I was in in a bad way. Uh, But I was unwilling to not be afforded the right to eat. and I was obviously in a predicament where I, I something had to change. And so much of my very early incarceration was this, this process of becoming physically able to navigate my environment and becoming physically able to do things like sit at the table and not have to sit on the floor and be able to eat the food that was that was slid in, um, slid into the pod. And for, you know, I wish this was a, had been a shorter time period for me, but it was like several years where my only focus was like survival and kind of getting my feet up under me and and learning to navigate this new environment. And that was very much what my, my early years of incarceration were. And thank you for sharing too, because I always, I want to give autonomy, right. And, and you share what you feel comfortable sharing. How was getting sober in prison it was hard and it happened right away um anything that i could get in my early incarceration i, I just i just used and it's like the pills that came in with the nurse and, and like the things that were brought in uh and that's because i was really uncomfortable and especially in jail i was facing a lot of time and i was a young kid and at, at that point in time i was facing the, my first offer was for longer than i had been alive so i just like didn't know what i was going to do it felt like 
uh, almost literally like the end of the world or the end of very real and also very far away at the same time. It felt like something that I, I just like couldn't um, felt like something very not tangible, but very imminent and, and, and very, very real and very present at the time. Um, and then slowly, you know, everybody's recovery looks different. Everybody's use looks different. Um, but drug use for me slowly filtered out because I, uh, it became less in, and less in alignment with who I wanted to be as a person. On, on the streets, I had this you know, fantasy or false reality of being really in control of having a lot of autonomy. And uh, that was not true. That was objectively not true. And inside of jail and prison, being out of control was less acceptable to me. The consequences were different being out of control um, in, in prison than they were on the streets. And so as a result, I just drank less, used less, et cetera, et cetera. Until one day I, I found myself in a, in a very real situation the last time I used. And I realized that I really didn't like the person who I was. And I, um, I realized substances made me do things that were very unaligned with who I wanted to be. And I realized I was around a lot of people who obviously have less control of this in prison, but I was around a lot of people who I didn't want to be around. And I almost had this whatever, I hate to use like a dogmatic term, but I had a spiritual experience where I recognized that this wasn't me anymore and I needed to change. Mm. Profound. How old were you when you were first system impacted? I was 18. 18. And I did some like very brief stints in the juvenile justice system and like juvenile probation and stuff like that. But let's just say like 18 um was when that like world became real for me while you were incarcerated did you have access to programming not a lot texas is a funny place um uh, so there's like a lot of here's you know a, a tangent that will maybe make this feel more concrete for for people who are listening in um, in Texas, one of the most popular programs is this HVAC trade, so heating and air conditioning. And in Texas, there's also a state law that you can't perform. Facilitating these programs for facilitating this trade school, but it's very hard to actually like take that and utilize it once once you're out of prison. Uh, and Texas has Texas has many programs like that. There there is a college system. I was enrolled in college three times, but I was kicked out three times for fighting. When I was incarcerated, I um, was somewhat different from a lot of people I I knew because a lot of people become really focused on parole and the date that they're eligible, and in some ways that incentivizes really good behavior. But my perception was that it. Um, made people really fixated on a certain date. And then when they didn't get the answer that they wanted, their life kind of fell apart or their willpower fell apart or they, they lost control mentally. And so I went in with the mind frame of, I've got a 10 year sentence. I'm going to do the entire thing. I'm going to get good at prison. I'm going to get really comfortable. I'm going to make a name for myself. And I was also, you know, I don't want to take 
um, ownership away from myself or, or like dodge accountability here. But uh, I was a young kid, uh, small. And so to make a name for myself and, and get comfortable, violence had to become a part of my world. And that just meant that I was less a part of general population and things like programs and things like education. And I spent more time in disciplinary status, administrative segregation, closed custody, medium custody, et cetera. Well, you're so young to be 18 with other likely full grown men or people that had been inside for a long time or people that were began incarceration later in life. So I can absolutely understand your need or this felt sense that you need to protect yourself. And that is how you went about protecting yourself. Yeah, it served a purpose at the time. The the way that I lived served a purpose at, at a time until it didn't. So you did 10 years in Texas. What did your life look like when you got out? I was really, really fortunate and we wouldn't, I don't think we would be having this conversation without it. Two years before my release, uh, my dad contacted me and wanted to get back in touch with me. And I I paroled to his house and I was there for several months before I got housing on my own. I was like really fortunate to be in a situation where, you know, it's common that when you get out of prison, you're just immediately faced with like all these problems and all these bills. And that was much less true for me. My my two options before then, and I, I really didn't know what I was going to do, would have, would have been to go to somewhere like the Salvation Army or to parole to my homie's house. And that was just cut, like going to be, I was going to be handed a quarter pound of dope and a pistol. And that was going to be a bad scene, even if I didn't want to go that way. Like sometimes... Uh, economically people have very little choice like, like again you've got a housing bill you've got a phone bill you got to figure out transportation and, and so that can be difficult I was, so I was fortunate not to have to worry about those problems and I was afforded the opportunity to kind of get my feet up for me first when I got out that is incredible so you're you're talking about all these bills and everything and then you don't have access to jobs you don't have an opportunity to work or your opportunities are um, much smaller because you, because you just got out of prison. I don't, I don't know how true this is because my experience is my own experience, but for a long time, it felt like I interviewed for more jobs than anybody I know. Uh, I applied for three, I like a very vivid memory of applying for three car washes that paid under the table, under minimum wage. And I was denied at all of them. I was riding my bike all around. I'm from Dallas, all around Dallas, getting turned down. I got a job at Sam's and I got a job at Home Depot. And then they came back and told me, oh, we ran your record. And those are are allegedly fair chance employers that uh, only go back seven years on records. But uh, in reality, that's not what happens. I'm sorry that happened. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it's an opportunity. If that hadn't, if finding a job wouldn't have been so difficult, I wouldn't have by necessity been forced to work in my passion and with my passion. Yeah, let's get into it. So, mentorship and belonging. And you're part of this amazing, you're a co founder of this community and Deuce Gym. Will you tell us the story of how you found this community? For sure. So my my passion, it, one of my passions is human movement and strength and conditioning. Uh, I mentioned earlier that 
upon my early incarceration, I just had no control of my body. I didn't like who I was. I was like faced with this very immediate physical situation. And for most of my life, I um, just whether through my environment and through information that I took in and the way that I saw the world, I thought that people couldn't get better at things, that people would just kind of were who they were. And I know we've all heard that cute story about Michael Jordan getting cut from his basketball team. And like, yeah, I watched Space Jam growing up. And that just didn't seem real to me. I just like had this sense that Michael Jordan was born as Michael Jordan. And people that were really good at things, like great musicians were like just great musicians. And, and people that were great writers were just like great writers. And that's how people were great leaders were born great leaders they didn't have to develop that quality and then there was me and i just like kind of wasn't shit and that's that's those were the cards that life had dealt me and i was going to do the best with those that i could and then again because of the immediacy of, of my environment um i started to do push-ups and work the pads and then i could do more push-ups and less fights and that was a very powerful thing to me so i became obsessed with physiological adaptation or, or physical change and I, I learned that I could make myself into a different person and it wasn't immediate and it wasn't easy, but the journey of that was, was very worthwhile. And so movement became a, pa a passion of mine. I didn't have access to a lot of great information, but I, I learned like we've all learned to do the things that we're great at. I learned through a lot of mistakes. Uh, and so before my release, I was uh, sitting in administrative segregation and just for context, that means that you're in a box by yourself all day long, almost every day for 23 hours a day. Some days you get to come out to a slightly larger box and you're still by yourself. But the environment is still violent. You still have people trying to like spear you through the bars and there's like all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, People that have, have been there will, will understand what that environment is. I had a friend who was released before me and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I got out and he had gone to the oil fields and been pretty successful. And he invited me there and I said, man, I really don't think that that's what I want to do. So I had the knowledge to know, I knew enough about myself to know that I wouldn't be happy there. And I had this sense that like a lot of the problems in my life happened because I, I wasn't happy or fulfilled with myself or with what I was doing. I mean, the only thing I love to do in prison uh, other than politic was to train and read. And so I was like, well, maybe I could be a personal trainer or a coach. And I asked him for a couple books that I had heard about. And he sent me these books and I just devoured them. And so I had the idea, okay, when I get out, I'm going to find a gym and I'm going to somehow convince them into getting me a job. And I'm going to like read all the books that I can and, and do a thing. And I was fortunate enough to, I knocked on a lot of doors and I was fortunate enough to knock on one gym door and the owner decided to give me a chance and take me in, sleep on the gym floor and clean their equipment in exchange for membership. And the coaches there taught me how to coach. And I started to build a whole new life. Incredible. I'm hearing, I would love to hear about the internal journey that was happening while you're building your external, while you're building external strength. What was the journey inside like? Yeah, I mean, I was still, I got stronger <laughs> on the outside, uh, but I was still very scared, um, very uncomfortable with myself, very afraid to love myself or offer myself love, uh, very dissatisfied with who I was. And those things, you know, maybe this is 
an unpopular statement, but those things did begin to change when my physical body began to change. As I got confidence externally, I developed confidence internally. And then once I realized that with work and intention, I could change things about myself. I realized like, oh, fuck, I can change things about myself spiritually and emotionally as well. And I could like start to think differently and I could start to apply other forms of work. And again, I wish like the first time I did pushups that it just made me never lose a fight again. Or the first time I worked the pads, that's not true. And uh, internal work works the same way. So it's a very long, slow process, again, fraught with like many mistakes. Well, and you're speaking so much, so, so much to change, right? Like change is difficult. And I can see that you understood or felt like that there was this barrier there like oh i'm actually not capable of changing or you had a story that you're like oh okay i'm i am born this way michael jordan is born this way that there's no possible way that i can change and then your physical reality informed and opened up this understanding of that you can change yeah exactly how did you end up in la I ended up in LA. Um, I like backpedal for a second. Yeah. So this gym that I was in in Dallas absolutely changed my life. And I was fortunate to have the best mentors there with the biggest heart. And in, you know, I've been in, worked in very few industries. So I, I can't speak to how others are. But in the fitness industry, strength and conditioning industry, there's this very common phenomenon where people reach a certain level and then plateau where professionals reach a certain level and plateau where they, they become good enough. And because I knew the only option available to me other than to live my dream was to die in a box or on the streets, I just kind of refu have refused to plateau and just refused to stop. And so I began seeking out mentors that could teach me more. I was hadn't had a name for it before about this point in my journey, but I came, became really obsessed with personal development and professional development. And there's very few institutions in the strength and conditioning industry that are relentlessly dedicated to growth on, on the professional side of things. And everyone that I could find, I sent a DM to an email and two wrote me back. And one organization that wrote me back is a, a gym that I now have equity in, in Venice Juice Gym. Uh, and the founder of that gym sent me some free information and education that he had written and said, hey, I hope you make it out here and, and I hope you, you keep in contact with me. And every time he would give me advice or every time I would take one of his courses, I felt like this guy was magic because I learned a ton and became a different version of myself. I, I became better. I made more money when I applied the ideas that he gave me. And so I decided that like, I'm really not going to be satisfied until I make it to Los Angeles. And for those of you who are unaware, Los Angeles is a very expensive city and it, it's hard to make it in. And so it wasn't just a thing that I was immediately able to do. Um, but I reached a point in my career where I became comfortable enough to move to L.A. and make some sacrifices and take an internship at the gym. What happened next? 
Yeah, so it's hard. I, I would love to say that I got there and people were just like, great, you're hired. This is how it works. But we have a, a very specific, very rigid developmental program um, that has certain phases. And I had to make it through that program and I had to be embarrassed as a coach in front of the room. And I had to I had to learn from failure uh, and I had to take responsibility, we say, on the for-profit side of Deuce and the nonprofit side as well, that um, leadership or responsibility isn't something that we give. It's something that you earn. And so I had to earn that responsibility and I had to put in a lot of work on the front end and until I was a four. Sorry, you cut out on my end. Can you say that again one more time? So I, um, I had to continually take more responsibility and ownership inside of the organization and inside of Deuce until I got to the position I'm at today. And one thing that any attrition that we see on the professional side of the organization is because it's hard and because people want to reach a point where, where they plateau. The best thing in the world about the job I have today is that it's always hard. And the worst thing I have in the world about the job I have today is that it's always hard, but that means that I, I continually get to grow. I have to earn that though. Mm. Will you tell us about Deuce Gym? Absolutely. So Deuce Gym is located on an intersection in Venice, Rose and Lincoln. Uh, it's a really peculiar place. Externally, it's got this gritty vibe. We call it the yard and it very much lo looks like a yard. It's situated in an old garage that's mostly outdoors and has like a rusty gate around it. There's some implements in the gym that for sure appear intimidating, like Atlas stones, so big balls of concrete, kegs. You've got people with their shirt off, like lifting heavy things in the middle of it. And there's a iconic sign that's uh, like an old piece of driftwood into which is carved motivated people only at the gate. An environment like this was something that like really appealed to me. It's almost like this fantastical version of, of a prison yard with uh, people who are trying to make themselves better, not worse. And it's one of the things I was obsessed with about this gym is you have a ton of people who are pushing their edges. We call it edge work at the gym. Who People are working really hard to express the best version of themselves. And on the yard, in a lot of ways, that looks like the um, pursuit of some sort of physical practice. And that's really not what it's about. We have lots of people who come to the gym who never work out. In fact, we've got a sign on the yard that says you don't have to work out to kick it. And we've got a picnic table where people will, will sometimes come, bring their laptops and do work and just sit outside in the California sun. I'm sorry you cut out for a second. Did you? No, no problem. I I don't know if it's the rain. Sorry, the internet's not super great here. So the last thing I heard you say was the hang in the California sun. Yeah, so pe people will come there and you might assume you might drive by. It's on a very busy street. So you might assume that everybody that trains here is just an asshole and a meathead and only cares about physical performance, aesthetics, etc., but it's actually a place where we love to have deep conversations and we'll pe where people will come just to have conversations or a cup of coffee and not to train. Amazing. So you have the Deuce community. So you have 
people that are previously incarcerated coming and joining this community, right? And you have membership and you have mentorship and you have paid internships. Tell, tell us about the, the framework and maybe how someone could get involved or what's the journey of this gym. Absolutely. So the gym started with the same basic premise that the nonprofit started with. And that's that we believe that all people have unrealized potential. That's me. That's you. That's everybody on this call. That's everybody outside the window on the street. That's um, the guy in the alley. We all believe that we could be a fuller version of ourselves. And we also believe that the most potential, the most fulfillment in life lies in pushing the space where we are, where we we stand today, and that space where we want to be. And we know that we'll never really get there, and that's okay, but it's not about the destination. I was having a conversation with another coach the other day, and they were asking, well, what's the thing that I should do to be better? And it was like a group conversation, and the consensus was, well, it doesn't really matter. And we just picked a really arbitrary example. And that was a, a three and a half times body weight deadlift, which if you're not familiar with, would, would be a, a remarkable feat and would take probably 10 years eight training. And we gave the example that if you train for this, you would have to become a different person. You'd have to become obsessed with this goal. But if on the day that you had peaked for that level of expression, that that very high level of performance and you walked up to the bar and set up the thing that you had practiced for for 10 years and you grabbed the bar and it didn't move it actually wouldn't matter at all whether that bar moved or not it would be you would have you would still be a different person and and the work that you put in over that 10 year period that's what would have made the difference not your ability to lift the barbell off the ground or not And so we really believe that that's true. And we really focus in on process rather than outcome at at the gym and on the nonprofit. We also realize that, and this is largely due to the fact that Venice is a very different place than it used to be. Um, It's become very gentrified. It has a very economically successful social demographic and so we would say that like everybody can achieve the best version of themselves. And then that really didn't felt, feel true because everybody that trained there drove a Tesla and it's like looked a certain way. Um, and we recognized, and this is largely through my personal experience and, and other people in the organization that individuals who are system, substance and housing impacted, that they're denied an opportunity to reach this peak level of expression. Or as we sometimes say, they're denied a seat at the table. And this seems kind of silly to us for a couple of reasons. One, because we're actual human beings. And two, because why would a, a business, we're, we're very interested in, in business at Deuce. Why would a business shut its doors to people in the room who were the hungriest, the most driven, the most dedicated, had some opportunity? It just seems like a like a poor way to run an operation. And so we wanted to kind of like flip that model upside down and give the most motivated people more opportunity and more uh, more chance to realize their potential. And so anyone who's interested that falls in that demographic, and, and we're pretty loose about that, like you don't have to fill a questionnaire out, you don't have to do an application, can participate in any one of our programs. And some of those programs 
look like a partnership with the Phoenix, for example, where you can participate in free strength and conditioning activities. Some of these programs look like some community gardens that we're starting. Some of these programs look like community dinners that we host at our housing facility, uh, trash cleanup. So very low barrier to entry stuff. You basically just got to show up to a thing. And there's several things you can show up to a week. And some people just want to be here and live here. And, and that's great. And like do the free thing and be a part of the community. Naturally, you'll have some individuals at those events who want to take more responsibility. We, we mentioned earlier, taking more responsibility to grow in leadership. And to those people, we begin to offer mentorship that looks more direct and more one-on-one. -on -one. And we begin to give those individuals access to free educational programs that are normally sold for a cost on the for-profit side of our business. Uh, but we believe in those people and want to invest in them. And we realize that they don't have the resources to purchase those things. So we give them to them for free. And then some of those people continue to take those opportunities. And then we'll offer them an unpaid internship, either in business. The gym has several ancillary businesses around it, like a marketing agency where they can enter. And so it's not just, you don't have to be a meathead to be involved in our programs. Some of those people want to be strength and conditioning coaches, and that's great. And we speak the language of movement really well. And even those individuals who aren't interested in being strength and conditioning coaches, we encourage them to enter that journey. Because to stand at the front of the room in front of a group of people who are interested in change, but not interested in the science of strength and conditioning, you would have to be able to have empathy for everybody in the room, for a diverse group of individuals. You would have to be able to articulate complex concepts really well in a simple way. You would have to be well on your way to mastery in a craft that's difficult and typically doesn't pay a lot of money, especially at the beginning. You'd have to be really focused on process. And if all of these things were true about yourself, there's just a whole lot that you could do. You wouldn't need to be people that reach the highest level of our organizations as a coach have a lot of options because of skills that transfer to anything that they want to do. Amazing. I, I, I love everything that your organization and Jim does. And we've, I feel like we've kind of like danced around it, but why has been, why has mentorship been so important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Because it absolutely changed my life. I wouldn't, I used to say that I never had a positive mentor until that point where I reached that gym in Dallas. And the guy that, um, I apologize for not directly shouting him out earlier. His name's John Mariotti and the gym is CrossFit Odyssey. And he's this cantankerous old Italian man who owned a dojo for many years and then got into the sport of uh, and he he gave me an opportunity and was just like, had the toughest exterior, but the deepest and most genuine heart. And if he hadn't have taken a chance on me, no one else in the world would have. And he would acknowledge this himself. There was a little bit of a disconnect because he didn't do 10 years in prison and he, he lived a very different life than I could. So there's a lot of problems that I faced that... He could give me great advice on, but he couldn't directly relate to my experience. And so what I wanted to make available was a path that was 
not very rigid. That was somewhat subjective because all of our journeys are different and we're all different, but a, a path from this point in life where we've reached a really low point and we're trying to change to success and success can look different for all of us. And I noted that a couple of key things were really important on my journey. And some of those things were community. A big one was mentorship. A big one was belief in myself and other people who believed in me as well. And I wanted to create an environment where that was possible for anybody because, because it's really hard. And I, uh, I've looked for ways in which this is not true, but I have yet to meet somebody who's come from an experience like I've come from and made it out to the other side and not just wanted to reach their hand right back and, and pull somebody else out. And I wanted there to be a structure for this and uh, I wanted it to happen well and I wanted it to be informed primarily by people with lived experience. Incredible. And uh, I really love the way that you've described this first mentor that you had. So having the experience that you have had, what are some qualities that you feel like creates an excellent mentor? Yeah, empathy is probably the biggest one. Patience is a huge one. And... Um, a particular brand of leadership is important here. The ability to lead from the front or be in the trenches. One of the reasons that I respect my, my current mentor and the founder of our gym so much is that if the floor and he, even though he's got lots of things on his plate that are way more important than mopping the floor. And even though there's lots of people immediately in the environment that are, that should be mopping the floor or that are the better person for the job, he's just going to go ahead and do it. And I think if you don't recognize that in your mentor, if you don't recognize that there, they would do the things that they're asking you to do it, it. There feels like there's some kind of disconnect. I totally agree. That's um, you see that they are disintegrating a, a hierarchy of tasks. They're not above doing something. If something needs to get done, they do it. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, there's a, this isn't the exact same thing, but skin in the game is important. So another way to say this is if I was looking for a business coach, I wouldn't want somebody who only understood the theory of business. I would want somebody who had created a successful business himself. Mm -hmm. What would you tell someone who might be interested in joining this gym or community? What would you share with them? Yeah, I would say that. And here's something that we didn't touch on. Um, I would say that it's going to be harder than you want it to be. And we love attrition. And if you're okay with that, if if you're okay that this is going to be a difficult thing, come on through. If, if you're looking for the highest expression of this, if you're looking to enter the organization at the highest levels of, of leadership, which we believe is possible for anybody, leadership is a teachable skill. And we're a very inclusive place, maybe much more inclusive than I've painted the picture of us being. Um, we have a, a space for everybody and we want everybody at all times to know that they can walk through the gate of our gym and just hang out. However, if some of the things that I've said about like 
oh, I could do anything that I wanted to do, which at the organization feels less like this, like Barney and friends kind of like feel good pat on the head thing and, and feels very much more like, wow, like I have a lot that I need to change about myself or I have a lot of capacity that I need to grow into and it's going to take a long time and, and, a, and a lot of work. Um, then on that level, we found that it's actually better to try to talk people out of the program. Seeing or expressing that something is aligned for them. And that's like, that's, that's supporting someone in success. Right. Yeah. Awesome. At this time, I think I'm going to open it up to our community to ask questions as well. So just restating to anyone that's on the call or anyone that wasn't here earlier, if you're on your desktop, there's a black bar at the bottom and you can put your questions into the Q&A. Um, and if it doesn't work for you accessibly, you're welcome to put it in the chat as well. And we'll direct the questions to Campbell. Um, and while people are starting to gather their questions, there was one earlier that I, I had a, a question about it too. Um, were you re reunited with your adoptive father or your biological father? Uh, adoptive father. Adoptive father. Okay. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Are you still in connection with him? I am. No. That's beautiful. Yeah, we, we've developed a mutual respect for one another that neither of us thought we would. Hmm. Change. Here we got a question coming in. Great. What's the best advice you can give to someone mentoring those with justice impacted experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I would reframe to say that I think that mentoring somebody with justice impacted experience isn't that di different from mentoring anybody else. It requires that you put yourself in their shoes and are available for them at all times. And one thing, one edge that I have as a, as a mentor is sometimes I'll want people to make progress faster. And, and I'll just be like, yo, you should, you should have gotten this thing by now. What's up? And, and maybe I'll put myself in their shoes and that's not quite fair rather than uh, meeting them where they're at, if that makes sense. So one, I don't know, trick is the wrong word to use, but I'll, do this drill where that I see from my perspective, the behavior that I perceive that is hurting them. And I'll try to fit an age group to that. And so then if I have, if I have a person that I'm mentoring, that's for example, making bad choices, but I really believe in them and the potential and where they can go rather than getting frustrated, I'll try to be like, Oh, yo, this cat's acting like he's 13 years old or this cat's really acting like he's five years old and he's never had a loving and supportive community around him. And then, so I'll, I'll try to address it from that. And, and I'll, I'll try to look at the, um, the support that that person needs and build that up around them so that they grow in maturity. And, and then that's uh, not a guarantee, but then hopefully their behavior changes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, tying it up, as well. And just saying that meeting people where they're at. I really love that. And just giving the spaciousness to, to understand. 
Next question. Where do you see Deuce Community in five to 10 years? And what does the organization need to execute those goals? Yeah, I, uh, that's a phenomenal question. I go to sleep every night thinking about this. Uh, five to 10 years, I see we currently have housing for our participants. So we originally, I don't want to go down too big of a tangent, but we originally said that what we do really well is we do leadership development. And that's the thing that we want to entrepreneurial development. That's the thing that we want to focus in on. And we have tons of partners who do lots of great work and, and we don't want to do it. We don't want to do therapy. We don't want to do housing. We don't want to do any, any wraparound services. And then we started losing a ton of guys to hostile negative home environments. And we realized like, man, we got it. We got to support these people outside of just the context of work, mentorship, the gym. Uh, and so we started housing. I would like to expand that. So that anyone in our program has a safe home environment. I would like to expand some of our wraparound services. And then I would like to expand the physical location of the gym to include a community center. So one of the cool things about our for-profit business is that any a piece of equity in the gym. And I would like that to be true for the nonprofit as well. For example, I would like participants in our program to be able to have equity in that community center. And I would like them to run enterprises out of it. One way that this is developing is several men in our program are starting a meal prep company. And though we're funding that operation, but they're going to own the company and they're going to make all the money from it. And we'll give them all the support and all the guidance. I would like more things like that to be possible because this isn't a, a, a slug at um, any other programs or any other method or style of doing things. But one of the things that I've been frustrated at in, in the industry or, or in life in general for people who are system substance and housing impact is it feels like there's a very real ceiling. If, if it feels like I can only get this like minimum wage job or I can only get my CDL and I have to be stuck at a certain level for forever, why would I want to do that? If I called shots on the yard, like, Maybe I want to call shots in business too. It would be, seem kind of silly to just regress for the rest of my life. Um, I, I want the future of Deuce community to look like more economic, more social, more spiritual growth and opportunity for the people in our program and, and for anybody who, who wants it. That's incredible. I didn't know you had a housing program. That's so impactful. Yeah. And we we thought that the most impactful thing about our housing program would be the ability to provide that that like safe home environment. But I, I think that we've learned that the most beneficial thing about it is actually behavior modeling. When people see others that are that are farther along than them, or maybe it's a bad way to phrase it, but when people see others who are where they would like to be, uh acting a certain way and ingraining certain habits, then things begin to change. Then the conversation starts to be like, oh, that's what I would have to do to get to that place. Like some of the, the men who come, it's a, a male only housing at the moment. Some of the men who come into our housing haven't eaten a vegetable in a couple of years. No. Or they haven't had a morning routine or a sleep schedule or just things that probably everybody on this call would recognize is really important to their success and, and their fulfillment. They just haven't been exposed to things like that before. 
And I want to restate the second part of the question too, because also what I love about webinars and podcasts is that we get to uplift other organizations too. So what does the organization need to execute those goals? Yeah, the technical problem, that's the easy one. We need more money to be able to do that. Um, The adaptive thing is we need to grow in a leadership capacity. So we need to be able to do more things. Right now, um, just transparently, our work feels like this very in the trenches thing. It's very much like we're putting out fires all the time and we're figuring things out. And a lot of the the day-to-day is like very technical and okay, like this happened, this person needs support, we're going to get it to them. We have to evolve into uh, a higher version of the organization, of a higher version in ourselves. So we're able to create some distance between what's going on on the ground to build out these higher level systems. Excellent. Thank you. If you could mentor a version of your younger self, what are some of the things you might tell yourself? And what techniques might you use to try to break through? That's a great question. Um, You know, I'm not convinced that my younger self would listen to anything that I have to say. Um, But I would, I would let the younger version of myself know that he was okay for the person that he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that I didn't feel for myself for a very long time. And I have done a lot to work through this and it's, it's an ongoing process to be transparent, but I didn't love myself. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I didn't believe in myself or the things that I was capable of. If that had would have been different, a different reality would have been different to me. And I would have, the techniques that I would have used, I would have put myself around positive support systems and positive people. Beautiful. Thank you. And I think that that connects to this next question as well is, do you have any programming that works with people who are still incarcerated to support their journey and development before release? We do. We would like to build out more programs that are inside facilities. We offer education in a few facilities that partner with us. So we have a program called Coaches Prep 101 that's available to anyone who's system substance and housing impacted. And if you have, if you know anybody or you know participants, you can, my email will be on this link. You can email me. We'd, we'd love to get that out. We have another course called Business Prep 101, which is principles of entrepreneurship. And then we have several courses on adaptive leadership or, you know, in short, Developing, I, I spoke to the organization needing to evolve and become a better version of itself. It's how to do that as a person, how to develop more capacity. Um, so we we offer those educational programs to any facility inside those facilities. Um, we mostly work with people who are at the end of their sentence in transitional housing facilities. So think of it as prison, but not prison. There's one partner in particular we have in downtown LA, South Central LA called Amity Foundation. Um, And they're a temporary housing facility for people at the end of their sentence. So these people can leave the facility um, with some guidance. So they have to get a pass approved. They have an ankle monitor. And it's many of these uh, men and women who are our most successful interns because they're in an environment that's still pretty strict, pretty regulated, but they have a little bit more freedom. 
then they can earn the right to travel to and from the gym. How do people get in contact with you? Email is the best way. Campbell at douchegym.com. I'm fairly responsive. Give me 72 hours and you'll for sure hear back from me. Okay. Thank you. And how do people that are currently incarcerated or system impacted find these three amazing programs that you talked about? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So we're very, very interested in bringing more of these to the prison system. And the best way to do that, if somebody have access to this talk right here, would be to send a letter to 110 Lincoln Boulevard, Venice, California, 90291. And I'll put that in the chat as well. Okay. And then are they sending like a, re- a request for uh, a proposal? Tell, tell us more of the, of the uh, process. Yeah, so they could... So these courses are delivered in video format. However, everything in life is made up and there's no real rules. So if we got a letter from an individual who just really wanted to make this thing happen, um, I would love to figure out a way to make that happen. And they were like, hey, like I don't have access to a laptop, can't do this internet thing. With, with several facilities, we've uploaded our programs onto Google Drive so that individuals can can access those through like an intro. I don't know anything about technology, but through an intranet, I think is the word. Um, okay, cool. I'm getting a nod. So I'll take that. No, um, surprising nod. I also, I'm also not a tech or I'm a, I'm a meme person. That's about the extent of my right, internet knowledge. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I'd be really interested in figuring out a creative solution to get people access to those programs. I love that. So just I'm I'm hearing that you're committed to getting these programs to people. And the first step is to send you a letter. Correct. Fantastic. Do you have any plans to the to deliver this programming to women? And what kind of support do you need to do that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So our programs uh about a year ago saw the first inclusion of of women. Um, we're very interested in building these programs out. Some of what needs to happen is um, a greater capacity on our part for building networks inside the prison system with with female prisons and with female units. Some of what needs to happen is we need to find a, a really great woman with lived experience to mentor other women in our program. It's, it's like very true that, and we see this a lot, is my experience inside of prison is I never saw anybody really be successful. Like the stories I would hear about people getting out was like such and such went back to the streets and made a lot of money or got busted again, or I would see people come in and out. So there wasn't this whole lot of, there was a whole lot of belief that real success or living a different life was really possible. Mm. I think the same is, is true for all of us. If we don't really see somebody that looks like us, that we can identify with doing the thing that we're trying to do, the goal feels more distant and more far off. And one of the major hurdles in bringing our program to women is that we just don't have a female mentor with lived experience. I'd be very interested to find that person. Okay, fantastic. And maybe this podcast will be an opportunity to find the perfect person. Yeah, putting it put a call out. Yeah. Speaking into existence I'm about it. Yeah. So 
questions can continue to come in, but I wanted to offer you uh, an opportunity to speak to anything that hasn't been brought up today or hasn't been spoken to. Yeah. Um, I I think the the big one is that you know my my obstacle in this is I'm just not articulate enough, and then also I I think that visually I represent something. I'm a little bit of a meathead, and I'm I'm always in the gym, so. I think that a lot of people can look at our program or look at my story and be like, oh, that's training or it's all about the barbell or it's like this thing that turns convicts into coaches when in reality, our program is just about changing the way that men and women view themselves and the way that they interact with the world. Like often people are like, what's the best thing that I could do? And part of me wants to go to like, I would say maybe this is a lower part wants to be like, well, give us money because part of my job for forever will be to fundraise and help to help develop our programs. But the most impactful thing I think people can do to get involved is to come to our programs or write a letter and connect with one of our participants and just have a conversation with, with those people. Many of them have never experienced a positive and supportive community, many if if none of them. And we really see the real change and the real transformation happen inside of our programs when our participants realize that other people believe in them and that there's a support system around them. And then it becomes safe for them to take some risks. It becomes safe for them to enter our educational programs and it becomes safe for them to show up. And they maybe this was this was my experience i had been told my whole life that i wasn't going to amount to anything that like i was going to die in prison i was going to die on the streets and i just believed that that was true and it wasn't until somebody started to treat me like that was not true like a different reality could be different that my behavior began to change as i think it's the same that's my experience but i really do believe that it's the same for everybody in our program if you wanted to have the biggest impact or you wanted to get involved in the biggest way, it would be as simple as like just showing up and having a conversation with somebody and giving them support. Thank you. One, I think that you're very articulate. I think that you've had beautiful messaging of this work and your journey. So I would just respectfully disagree that you're not articulate. I thought you've done a, a great job of talking about the mission mission and, and the work. And what I'm really seeing this kind of come full circle is that you have become the person that you wanted in your life. Yeah, thank you. That That means a lot. Yeah. I see it. And then we have a question in here. Any success stories from Deuce community and how the model supported them from the outside? I feel like you're, you're a success story, right? Like you joined this community. Well, you joined the gym and you built the community. Like that is such deep success. Um, but maybe talk about some other participants. For sure. And I'm infinitely more proud of everybody else in our, in our program before me. Uh, this could be a podcast all to its own, but we have uh, our participant, one of our earliest graduates, David Gonzalez, and I'll just share a brief part of, of his story. Um, 
David came from an environment that almost guaranteed that he would never be today where he is in, in life. Uh, and, and I'll let you just imagine what that's like. And without taking his story from him. And early on when I was building this program, it felt like just a fantastical, like, like not a real thing, but something that I wanted to speak into the world that one day I want one of the people in our program to make more money than me and be really well off and just, just be, be crushing it. And David did that within a very short amount of time. So we worked with David for about nine months when he was in this transitional housing facility, Amity, and he is the brightest, most curious, biggest student, um, just hungriest guy I've ever met in my entire life. And my relationship with David has been like brought more joy to my life than almost anything. And within a very short amount of time upon release, he had, he had met a woman when he was in prison who uh, he jokingly refers to as his new warden. And he says that because Cece provides the structure in his life that he needs to be successful. And they moved to San Francisco. So we were sad that David wasn't going to be in L.A., like born and bred in L.A., uh, but he went to San Francisco and that removed him from the environment that, that he grew up in, which is a very positive thing for him. And he also had the structure available to him. And I say this just to say that my role in David's story is very, very small. There's like a small friend, small mentor in his life. Uh, and he's got incredible potential. Within a very short amount of time of moving to San Francisco, he was afforded the opportunity to run a gym and he was afforded this opportunity because the things that he learned at Deuce were he was able to implement at a gym. He talked himself into a job at uh, and those things transformed that gym. So they thought David was magic. And uh, then in the process of getting that job, he left another job that begged him to stay on in a consultancy position. They say, we just can't lose you. You're, you're, you're too, you're too good. And so within a very short amount of time after his release from prison under a year, he was making $90,000 a year living in the Bay area, supporting a family. And when I first met David, he asked to be in the program. And like my initial thoughts were like, this guy's not going to make it. He's just like got too many ties to the streets. His history's too deep. Like he doesn't, he, he still had a lot of contact um, with people who are just not going to be very good for him. Uh, but I'm going to give everybody a chance. And I gave David a chance. And very early on in his journey, he realized that like, Hey, like this is just a better life for me. It's what I need to do. really beautiful story of his own kind of soul retrieval and what he walked away from was really just walking towards what he wanted. And that sounds like such a big move for him to move away from the place that he knew, the contacts that he knew, and then to the Bay, like one of the most expensive places in the whole world. It's scary. And it sounds like he's just flying. That's incredible. Yeah, he's he's mentoring other people up in the Bay Area right, right now, and um, it's really fulfilling for 
meter wide. Again, I genuinely feel like I played a very small role in David's life and his success, but it's very fulfilling for me to watch this impact that I have on him just expand and get bigger and bigger as he helps more and more people. Beautiful. And I have one last question for you before we end our time here today. Can you talk about the importance of belonging? For sure. For me, most of the decisions that I made early in my life that were were detrimental to my growth and my progress came with a really positive intent. I just wanted to belong to a group of people. I just wanted to feel loved and like I was worthwhile and like I had people around me who supported me and believed in me and thought that I was a dope human. Um, And I, I chased that in really unhealthy ways for a long time. I think that often it gets really easy for us to forget that that's just like a basic human need and a basic human desire. There's an interesting social, maybe this is more prevalent to me based on where I am in Los Angeles, but there's a really interesting social experiment somebody introduced to me. And that's like, what if every time you walk by somebody who is housing impacted, you smile at them and, and gave them a greeting, you gave them a what's up, man, or a hello, or it's really good to see you, or how is your day going? And what impact would that have on the community? And what impact would that have on the world? And like on a more micro level, it's just like, what would that do to that person's day? Who gets walked by a hundred or a thousand times a day and people don't look at them or like do a weird face thing or try to ignore them. And sometimes on a micro level, that experiment goes really well and will brighten my day as well. And sometimes it doesn't go well, but there's like other factors I think we can all acknowledge are are involved. Um, and I think that's that's a very small experiment to um, to show that like everybody wants belonging, everybody wants to feel loved, everybody wants to feel like they're included in a thing. And the experiment just doesn't have to stop with the homeless guy that you walk by every day. It could could be something bigger. Thank you. And I think you're speaking to something. So it's biological. It is belonging is part of survival. We need it. For sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your personal journey today. And we absolutely love you. We love Deuce Jim and all of the positive impact that you're having on your community and beyond. Thank you so much for being here and talking to our community about mentorship and belonging. We'll definitely drop the links in this episode to how you can stay in contact with Deuce Jim and Deuce community and how you can write a letter to 110 Lincoln Boulevard, Venice, California, 902. 291. If you are interested in receiving any kind of programming or mentorship while you are currently incarcerated. So thank you again so much for being an amazing and important part of this community and supporting people that are system impacted. Thank you, Blair. Thank you. Bye, everyone.